0: But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he he, and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It really was on my heart this morning not to do anything complex and not to do anything fancy, but really it was just on my heart this morning that I wanted us to see something beautiful about Jesus Christ. I really wanted us to to see something that is wonderful about him. I know there's many topics that we can address as a church. I know there's many issues and problems that we all struggle with, but I think that the greatest need that we all have as Christians is to, in our hearts, see and to savor the person of Jesus, is to, in our hearts, feed our souls on the greatness of who he is, is just to behold him and to look at him and to be amazed at who he is and what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection. And as I was just considering this week... What the Lord would have me bring to you this morning, my thoughts were turned to this passage, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And it's a very simple passage, it's a very simple scene. And the message in this passage is that Jesus Christ is beautiful, it's that Jesus Christ is wonderful, that he is more powerful than we think that he is, he's more wise than we believe him to be, that he's more gracious than we understand him to be, and that he not only is a transcendent God who is magnificent in his attributes and in his works, but he is also a personal God who reaches down into individual lives, into regular, ordinary lives like Peter, James, and John, and into your life, and into my life, and he wondrously transforms us by his grace. And so as we look at this passage, I just want us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, and I believe that this would be the will of the Holy Spirit, is that we behold And that we gaze at his glory and his power. So let's begin looking at this passage from verse 1. Luke says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. As we come to this passage, we are in the beginning of Christ's life and ministry. We are at the very start of his public ministry. He has begun to preach, and he has begun to teach, and he has begun to perform miracles and cast out demons. And In chapter 4, he's uh, rebuked the fever of, Simon's mother-in-law, he's cast out demons, Uh, many are bringing to him all who are sick, and he is laying his hands on them, and he is healing them all, and great power is going out, and great crowds are coming to hear Jesus Christ. It is the start of his ministry, and Luke locates us that when we come to this passage, we are at the lake of Gennesaret. Which is otherwise known in the Bible as the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was the setting for so many of Christ's works and so many of Christ's miracles and so many of what he so much of what he did is located at the Sea of Galilee. Technically this was a lake and yet it was a lake that was so big that it is called by many a sea and on the sea there were caught many fish and fish are still caught there today and fishermen would would earn their livelihoods on the sea of galilee by fishing and catching fish to support their families and here we're introduced to three such fishermen they're regular men nothing special nothing extraordinary they are simon And they are John and James, the sons of Zebedee. These are fishermen. Ordinary men making their living on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus in this scene is is being crowded by many who are pressing in on him. There are many who are clamoring to hear his words, to hear his teaching. And he's so crowded that... He asks Simon if he can use Simon's boat. And what he does is he gets in Simon's boat and he asks Simon to put the boat out to shore so that he can get a little distance from the crowd. And as the crowd stands on the shores of Galilee, Jesus teaches them from the boat. Now Christ has met Simon previously. In John chapter 1, Jesus actually met Simon and renamed him Cephas, which means Peter. But in this passage, Jesus calls Peter to full-time discipleship, to, to leave his fishing nets, to leave his boats, to leave his business, to leave his livelihood and to follow him and to walk in his footsteps. And he performs a miracle in this passage which will forever change Peter's life. Peter's commitment to follow Jesus will not be the result of mere willpower or extraordinary commitment, but it will be the natural response to the grace and the power and the majesty of what Peter witnesses in this passage. And so that's the scene a very simple scene. We're at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is on a boat. There are three fishermen, Peter, James, and John. The crowd is on the shore, Jesus is teaching the crowd. And in verse 4, Jesus gives to Peter a very unusual request. And the request is this, verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Put out into the deep and let your nets, let down your nets for catch. Jesus says to Peter, let's go fishing, Simon. Let's go catch some fish. We're in the shallow end now. Let's go to the deep end and put down your nets. And let's see what kind of fish we can catch today. Now, I want you to note here, and when Jesus asked Peter to put down your nets, it, was, it really was a, an unusual request. It really was a strange thing to ask. Because fish on the Sea of Galilee, they were caught by night. The fishermen who made their living on the sea would work by night. And during daytime, they would mend their nets. And I remember as a boy, my dad would take me fishing. And he'd get me up really early before the sun came up and he would say, you need to catch the fish while it's still dark because once the sun's up and the sun's in the sky, fish don't bite and they retreat into the deepest parts of the lake. And so the best time to fish is when it's still dark before the sun has come up. And on the Sea of Galilee, when the sun was up, it really wasn't the time to fish. The fish would retreat the deeper parts of the net. At nighttime, the fish would come up to the surface and the nets would be able to gather the fish and they would be more easily caught by fishermen. Peter in this scene has been laboring all night to catch fish and he hasn't caught a single thing. And during the day, verse 2 says, they're now mending the nets, they're washing the nets, they're doing the maintenance. But fish... In this vocation, we're caught by night. Jesus says to Peter, it's daytime, but I want you, Peter, to put down your nets. I want you to do it even though this is not what you usually do. I want you to do this even though this is not according to your custom. I want you to do this even though this doesn't make practical sense. I want you to do this even though this is contrary to what other fishermen would look at you and they would say, hey, why are you doing that? It's daytime. You're not supposed to catch fish during the day. I want you to do it, Peter, simply because you trust me. Simply because I say so. Simply because this is my word to you. I want you to do it because you trust me more than you trust your, your insights. I want you to do this because you trust me more than you trust your training. I want you to do this because you trust me more than you trust what you see. I want you to do this because you believe in me. Even though, Peter, from a human perspective, this won't make any sense at all. Do it. Because you trust me. Jesus' call to Peter is really a call to faith. He's asking Peter to trust him. And you know here that it's it's really a small thing that he's asking Peter to trust him in. It's not a big thing. It's just letting down his nets. And I just looked at this and thought, you know, so many times it's not the big things that we have trouble and trusting to Jesus, it's the little things. I mean, if we're at some big conference and there's this big call to missions and there's these radical decisions being made, a lot of us can get caught up in the moment and, and say we're going to trust Jesus with those big things. But when there's small things, like teach your children the gospel. Why? Because you believe. Because you believe that it's powerful. Because you believe in its power to change lives. Or small things like support the, the missionary efforts of your local church. Not the missions all around the world, just your local church, just your summer team. Do it because you believe. Do it because Jesus said to do it. I think sometimes we have trouble trusting Jesus in these little things. And for Peter, it wasn't a big thing. It was a little thing. It was let down your nets. Do something that your fellow fishermen would think is foolish. But just do it because I tell you to do it. And brothers and sisters, we're going to come to these points in our lives. And many of you are there right now where Jesus... Is going to call us to believe in him, to do things simply because we trust in him. And it's not going to make any sense to our families. It's not going to make any sense to our unbelieving parents. It's not going to make any sense to our career counselors or our financial counselors. It's not going to make any sense to anyone in this world, but Jesus is going to say, just do it because I say so. Walk by faith not by sight. And he said to Peter, trust me. Put out into the deep and let your nets down for catch. And verse 5 records Peter's response. And I love this response because it's so real and so raw. It's so genuine. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Peter's response, it's, it's not a response of great faith. It's not a response of extraordinary faith. It's not a response of radical faith. I think the best we could say about Peter's response is that It is a response of of weak faith. Of a little faith. It's small faith. It's faith that's filled with doubt. Faith that's filled with arguments. In his heart, he's saying, this isn't going to work. This is pointless. You see the the argumentativeness of his heart come out. He He says, master... We we worked all night. We caught nothing. And the idea here is Peter's like, Lord, this isn't gonna work. I mean, if we worked all night and and in the best of conditions, we didn't catch a single fish. Man, in the worst of conditions during the day, you think this is gonna we're gonna catch anything? His heart is It's not filled with this strong confidence in Jesus' word and Jesus' power and Jesus' provision. It's filled with doubt. He's operating mostly by sight, not by faith. And it's as if he would teach Jesus. He would say, Jesus, you're you're a carpenter. You don't know anything about fishing. I know these boats. I know this sea. I know these fish. I lived here all my life. My dad was a fisherman. I'm a fisherman. This is my life. I know you're not supposed to let your nets down in the daytime. It's really just a tiny faith, it's not a big faith. You see, a big faith would have said to Jesus, Jesus, you are the Lord. I've seen you cast out demons. I've seen you heal the sick. I've seen you rebuke fevers. Yes, Lord. Whatever you say. But Peter has to argue and give his point before he obeys. And he says, Master, the idea is you're saying, Master, this isn't going to work. This is pointless. But you see the genuineness of his faith there. At your word, I will let down the nets. Even though Peter's faith is a weak faith, it is a real faith. And though he is filled with doubt, and though he doubts the power and the provision of Jesus Christ, he says, if you say so, I'll do it. Because in my heart, I do believe in your word. You know, if you read through the gospel records, you realize that even at their best of times, the disciples were not men of great faith. They were not men of extraordinary faith. They were not men of of radical faith. Jesus said to them time and time again, you are men of little faith compound word in the Greek, oligopistoi. You are little faiths. You have such small faith. You trust so little. You doubt my power and my provision and my presence and my character. Time and time again, the disciples didn't show great faith. They showed small faith. They were anxious when they should have been confident. They were powerless when they should have relied upon Christ for ministry. They were pragmatic when they ought to have trusted in the power of Jesus Christ. They fretted over little and insignificant things when they had the Lord and the creator of the universe walking with them. And Jesus said to them over and over, you are men of little faith. You don't have great faith. You are those who have just a, just a mustard seed of faith. When Peter got out of the boat in the wind and the storm and began to walk on water, he saw the storm and he was fearful and began to sink. And Jesus said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And we look at that and say, well, at least Peter got out of the boat. At least he had faith to walk on water. But if we look at that objectively and just say, wow, if Peter knew who Jesus was, if he knew that Jesus had created the waves and the wind and that he had power over all things, if he really believed that, then wouldn't he have had faith to trust Jesus in the midst of the storm?" In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was trying to teach the disciples a spiritual lesson. And they were all fretting over the fact that they, they forgot the bread. He's trying to teach them this massive spiritual truth. And they're all like upset and worried about this, this bread, this insignificant thing, this logistical thing. And Jesus said to them, oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousands and how many baskets you gather? Don't you remember, disciple? I'm the one who creates bread. I just fed 5,000 families. And you saw it with your eyes and you're fretting over this little insignificant thing. That, that you don't have bread? Oh, you of little faith, so easily anxious, so easily hung up on such insignificant matters, when the God and the Lord of the universe is walking incarnate before you, if you had faith, you would trust me. You know, the disciples were always men of little faith. And if we're honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters, can we conclude anything different about our own lives? Can we look at the disciples and can we conclude anything different than we're than we're just like them? So easily upset. So easily anxious. So Easily overcome by the storms of life. When the God of the universe is with us. Can we say of ourselves that we are people of great faith? Or superior faith? Or extraordinary faith? Can we say anything different than, no, we're just just like them. We're just little faiths. Men and women of just a mustard seed of faith. Our faith is not great. It is not strong. It is not radical. It is not extraordinary. But the encouraging truth of the gospel records is that while our faith is a little faith, the object of that faith is a big savior. While our faith is small, He is very big. While our trust in him is weak, his power and his promises are very strong. And we are not accepted on the basis of the greatness of our faith. No, we are accepted on the basis of the greatness of our Savior, of the greatness of his sacrifice, and the greatness of his work on our behalf. Some of you have been conditioned to believe that God will only bless you if you have great faith. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that God will bless even little faith, even faith that is racked with doubt, even faith that struggles with doubting Christ and, and, and not trusting Christ. Just a little faith is all you need because if it's placed in the right object, That's all that matters. And Jesus blesses us, not according to the greatness of our faith, but according to the greatness of his grace and his kindness toward us. And that's exactly what he does to Peter in this passage. Peter shows this this weak faith. He takes one, I I think we could say, it's just one halting, doubt-filled, questioning step of faith and he puts down the nets even though in his heart he feels like it's not going to do any good and look how jesus blesses him in verse six and when they had done this they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink it's a frantic scene here Jesus is is pouring out blessing onto Peter's lives. And to a fisherman, nothing could be more emblematic of blessing than fish. I mean, that's what they worked for. That's what they earned. To, To fishermen, fish equaled dollar signs. Fish equaled vocational success. Fish equaled family sustenance. Fish equaled business Success, fish equaled, it, it was to them earthly blessing, the epitome of, of what they woke up every day to seek to do. And Jesus says, you want blessing, here's blessing. And there's so many fish in this catch that the nets are breaking and the boats are sinking and fishermen are calling out to each other and they feel like they're going to drown because the fish are coming into the boat and the boats are sinking waters coming into the to the boats and they're frantically trying to get the water out and they're saying help help and there is this massive overflowing abundant catch of fish In this passage, we see that Jesus blesses Peter not according to the greatness of his faith, but according to the greatness of Jesus' grace. You see, if he blessed Peter according to the greatness of his faith, he would have given Peter a catch of maybe five fish. Well, Peter, you just have a little faith, so I'll give you a little blessing. You just have a small faith, so I'll give you a small catch. Here's five fish. And here's a couple ugly fish to represent. These are your doubts and your fears and your arguments. But that's not what Jesus does. He blesses Peter, not because of his great faith, but in spite of the fact that Peter does not have great faith. And there is filled to overflowing blessing upon blessing. Poured out, overflowing, literally blessings so abundant that they could not contain it all, that they almost drowned in the blessings that Jesus provided. All in response to Peter's small, weak and doubting step of faith I believe that you know God is calling some of you and God is calling me some of the areas of your lives to to take a, a step of faith It may be in a real small practical area of your life it may not be some radical thing it may just be some small area of your life and God is saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe in me. I want you to follow me. What you're going to do isn't going to make sense to, to anyone who knows you. It's not going to make sense to, to your coworkers or, or your unbelieving family. It's not going to make sense into the words counsel, but I want you to do it simply because you trust in me. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you're caught up in this American perfectionism and you're saying to God, God, I don't want to do anything unless I do it all the way. I don't want to do anything unless I can do it right, unless I can do it with strength, unless I can do it with confidence, and unless I can do it with total strength and faith, I'm I'm not going to do it at all. And I would just encourage you, that God honors even weak, halting steps of faith. Just even when we're like standing there and we're saying, God, I, I don't know. Is it going to work? Is it going to do any good? Are you going to be there? Is this right? God But if you say so, if you say so, I'll do it. And even if when we come and just take one small step of faith, in the midst of our doubts and our anxieties and our fears, Jesus comes into our lives and he blesses us not according to the greatness of our faith, but he blesses us according to the greatness of his grace. And he honors even weak faith, faith like Peter's, faith like yours and mine. So the nets are breaking, the ships are sinking, the fishermen are panicking, the fish are drowning the the boats. This is uh, this is, this is Peter's um, this is his Forrest Gump moment. You know, like this is he struck it rich. This is um, he's hit the jackpot. I told you, the to fisherman fish equals dollar sign. This massive success. Peter is the envy of all Galilean fishermen. I mean, he's in business. Time to sell the fish, buy some better boats, time to make some franchising, time to strike a deal with Jesus. Jesus, you be my guide from now on. I'll do the fishing, 50-50 profit, and man, we'll take the Sea of Galilee by storm. I've hit the jackpot. I'm a rich man. I just got to stay near Jesus. And boy, I'm never going to have to worry about a thing again. Profit, profit, business profit. I can hire other fishermen, and we're just going to cut some deals here. You know what's amazing about this passage? is at the moment when Peter received the greatest earthly blessing that he could conceive, he forgot all about the blessing. At the moment when he hit the peak of what every man in his vocation would dream of, the peak of his, we could call it his business success, he forgot all about fish. At the moment when he was drowning in fish, he didn't care a thing about fish. You know why? Verse 8 records his response to this miracle. But When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying depart from me for I am a sinful man oh Lord Peter didn't care about the fish he forgot all about his vocation He forgot all about the boats. He forgot all about income. Because when Peter saw this miracle, he was overcome by the greatness and the power and the majesty of who Jesus Christ is. And in that moment, the last thing on his mind was making a profit. The last thing on his mind was dollars and cents. The last thing on his mind was his plans, his ambitions, his goals. Because Peter realized he was in the presence of holy God. And he said to Jesus, depart from me. I am a sinful man. And that's all that mattered. I think when Peter saw this miracle, he was overcome by by the power of Jesus Christ. He stood amazed. Who is this man who commands nature, who commands the sea creatures and the fish obey him? Who is he? I think when he saw this miracle, he was overcome by the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Who is this man who overturns human opinions, who, overturns human traditions, who tells people to do things that no human would agree with, and yet by his power and by his sovereignty, it is accomplished. I think Peter was overcome by the grace of Jesus Christ. Who is this man who who blesses with earthly blessing and doesn't just give five fish or ten fish or twenty or a hundred fish, but literally drowns people in fish? Who is this man? I think he saw the power of Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. But the one thing that stands out in this passage is that when Peter saw this miracle, he was overwhelmed and he was shattered with the holiness of Jesus Christ. He was overcome by the holiness of of Jesus Christ. Peter realized that he was in the presence of holiness. He was in the presence of holy God. And when he realized that he was in the presence of Holy God, he did what every man has done in Scripture when they realize they're in the presence of Holy God. He fell down at the knees of Jesus. And he was overcome by a sense of his own sinfulness this is what every man has done when they come before a holy God. Their righteousness is stripped away. They see not only the sin in their sin, they see the sin in their righteousness. They see that even their righteous works are like filthy rags. They see the sins not only of action, but of attitude. Not only of omission, but commission. Not only of deed, but of word and of thought. When men come into the presence of holy God, they see that they are not sinners because they sin, but they see that they sin because they are sinners. At the very core of their heart and their being, there is corruption. Their hearts are desperately wicked and sick, and who can understand it? And when men come into the presence of holy God, they are undone and they are shattered. Because the first time that they see God for who he is, they see themselves for the first time for who they are. And who they are is evil to the core. Who they are is corrupt to the very innermost part of their being. Who they are is sinful and wretched through and through. And so even righteous men like Isaiah, even prophets of God who came into the holiness, holy presence of God said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Even Righteous men like Job, when they come into the presence of God, he said, I lay my hand on my mouth, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Even righteous men like Ezekiel, who come and see the holy presence of God fall on their face before the glory of God, and even... Beloved men like the Apostle John, who saw the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1, it says he fell at his feet like a dead man because he was overcome with the wonder of the holiness of Jesus. RC Sproul has called this the trauma of holiness. The trauma of holiness. It is when sinful men come into the presence of holy they are overcome and shattered under the weight of their sin. And for the first time they see how corrupt And how evil and how wicked they really are. And they respond like Peter. Lord, depart from me. Jesus, get away from me. I can't be in your presence. I can't be near you. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know my sins? Depart from me for I am a sinful man. John Calvin explains, as long as we do not look beyond the earth, we flatter ourselves. We fancy ourselves to be demigods. But once we raise our thoughts to God and ponder his nature, what was once pleasing to us soon grows filthy in its wickedness. What once impressed us about our righteousness begins to stink in its foolishness. Hence, that dread and wonder with which Scripture commonly represents the saints as stricken and overcome whenever they felt the presence of God. Thus, men are so shaken and struck dumb as to be laid low by the dread of death, and they are in fact overwhelmed and almost annihilated by it. You know, when Jesus healed the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 4, and he took this legion of demons, and he had the demons go into the pigs, and the pigs went into the sea and drowned themselves. It says that the people of that town saw what Jesus did, and they begged Jesus to go away from them. you you have to leave, you have to get out of here. They were more afraid of the man who commanded the demons than they were of the demons themselves. they'd rather have a man in their midst who was possessed with a legion of demons than they would have the presence of holy God among them, and that was peter 's response. Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And James and John shared in this response, verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And I believe... That in this passage, what we have is really the account of Peter's conversion. This is his conversion. This is his transformation. You notice in verse 8, he's called Simon Peter. It's the only time in Luke's gospel where he's called Simon Peter, both his old name and his new name. Before this account, he is always called Simon, his old name. After this account, he is always called Peter, his new name. In this account, he is Simon Peter, because I believe that this is the moment of his conversion. This is the moment of his heart transformation. This is where he really sees himself for who he is, and he sees Jesus for who Jesus is. And brothers and sisters, I would say this. I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe in that one word, gospel, good news. I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news. It's the best news. It's, it's the greatest news this world has ever heard. I mean, forgiveness of sins and eternal life and adoption and reconciliation and standing in grace and living with God forever in heaven. I believe in grace. I believe in Irresistible grace. I believe in eternal grace. I believe in infinite grace. I believe in grace upon grace. But I also believe that true conversion is it's painful. True conversion is it's traumatic. True conversion is being shattered by the weight of your sin before a holy God. True conversion is coming undone before the holy presence of God. It's having all sense of your righteousness stripped away, leaving you naked with nothing to hide but the wretchedness of your sin. True conversion is coming like the tax collector and crying out and beating on your breast and saying, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Not just a sinner, one sinner out of many. The sinner. I am the sinner. And if you're not merciful to me, I am undone. True conversion is is having all sense of your pride destroyed. It's standing before a holy God and recognizing that you don't just have one sin or two sins or a hundred sins, you have a mountain of sins to account for. That you have not kept the greatest commandment for, for five seconds of your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, you have not kept that commandment for 10 seconds of your life. In fact, all your life you have broken the great first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me, and the greatest God, small g, that you have put before the true God, capital G, is yourself. You just you've worshipped yourself all your life. You put yourself at the center of your life, and you've worshiped at the throne of who you are, not at the throne of who Jesus is. True conversion is seeing your sin for what it is, and crying for mercy from holy God. And it's recognizing that the sentence of eternal hell upon guilty sinners is not some unjust, arbitrary sentence done by a God who is unfair, unkind. No, it is just. It is right. It is the epitome of justice for God to pronounce upon you and me the sentence guilty, guilty, and to send us the lake of fire where we belong that's true conversion it's what it's what peter saw in luke chapter 5 it's what you and i have seen when we came to jesus christ that we are sinners and if not for the mercy and the grace of god our place Is in the lake of fire, reserved for Satan and his angels. Peter comes to the end of himself in this passage. Nothing to commend himself and nothing to give. And what does Jesus do in response to Peter's brokenness? I love this in verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, Peter. When Peter was shattered under the weight of God's holiness, Jesus speaks into his life compassion and mercy. He says to him the same thing he said to the Apostle John in Revelation 1. John was shattered under the weight of God's holiness. and Jesus said to him, fear not. Don't be afraid. Essentially what Jesus says to Peter is, is no. You want me to depart from you, I won't. You want me to go away, I'm going to draw you near. You want to be out of my presence, I'm going to bring you into my presence. He says, Peter, I'm going to, you're going to be my disciple. You're going to be in my closest innermost fellowship, my circle. I'm going to love you, I'm going to care for you, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to train you, I'm going to forgive you, and one day, Peter, I'm going to use you, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You once caught fish to put them to death, but from now on, you will catch men to give them life. Peter, you're shattered, you're broken, you're groaning under the weight of your sin. But what you need to understand is that I am a God who is compassionate to sinners, who is kind and merciful and loving. And I show grace to sinners. And as great as your sin is, I am a greater Savior and I'm going to draw you near. And because of what Peter saw in the grace and the power and the sovereignty and mercy and the holiness of Jesus Christ, verse 11 says, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It wasn't that they were so committed. It wasn't that they were so dedicated. It was that they were so overcome by what they had seen. They couldn't help but follow. Leave everything to follow Jesus. This passage has an epilogue, it has a conclusion, and I need to take you there because it's so beautiful. Turn over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. If Luke chapter 5 is the beginning of the story, then John chapter 21 is the end of it. The truth is that Jesus, he performed this miracle twice. The exact same miracle. The exact same sequence. Even a lot of the same people The exact same setting, he performed it twice. He performed it once at the beginning of his ministry, and he performed it again at the end of his ministry. He performed it the first time in Luke chapter 5 when he was calling Peter into ministry, and he performed it again in John chapter 21 when he was restoring Peter into ministry. And John chapter 21 records the second time that Jesus performed this miracle. And it's going to sound very familiar because it's the exact same miracle he performed in Luke chapter 5. Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, the same sea, Sea of Galilee, just by another name. They're in the same place. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Sound familiar? exact same thing that happened the first time. They go out all night, and they can't catch a single fish. The fish, bells are going off on John's head. Wait a second. I've seen this before. I've seen this exact same miracle. When did I see it? Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. was not torn. The exact same miracle, the exact same sequence. They catch nothing all night, and their nets are filled with overflowing. The same people are there, Peter, James, John. Exact same place, the Sea of Galilee. Did you notice? There's one thing that is startlingly, startlingly different from the second miracle, from the first miracle. Did you catch what it was? Peter's response to the second miracle is radically different, in fact, almost contradictory to his response to the first miracle. In the first miracle, Peter said to Jesus, go away. In the second miracle, Peter said to Jesus, I have to be near you. In the first miracle, Peter said, you have to depart from me. In the second miracle, Peter said, I will do anything to get near you. I will fling myself out of the boat. I will wade. I will jump. I will swim. I will run. I have to be in your presence. The first miracle, Peter said, I can't be in the presence of Jesus. The second miracle, Peter said, I have to be in the presence of Jesus. First miracle, Peter said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In the second miracle, Peter was still just as sinful. In fact, he had just denied Jesus three times. It wasn't that he didn't feel any less sinful. But something compelled him the second time to run to Jesus with his sin instead of running from Jesus because of his sin. You say, What's that, Dan? What's the difference? What changed Peter so that he ran to Jesus instead of running from Jesus? And the is real easy, isn't it? It's the three years that he had spent with Jesus between the first miracle and the second miracle. It was that for three years he had walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, he had listened to Jesus, he had witnessed Jesus, he had been with Jesus. He had fellowship with Jesus. For three years, he had learned from Jesus. And during those three years, he had come to know Jesus. He knew Jesus is the, is the Messiah who has come to save men from their sin. He knows that Jesus is the friend of sinners. He knows that Jesus is the one who touches lepers, who forgives adulterous women, who who rescues lost prodigals. He knows Jesus as the one who has compassion on the multitudes, who brings helpless children into his arms and who embraces them. He knows Jesus as the one who has come to shepherd lost sheep and to find lost coins and to welcome lost sons. He knows Jesus better than he knew him the first time. And he has seen in his own life the ultimate expression of the compassion and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ in the death of That He has died upon the cross to pay for the ransom for sin. And because Peter has come to know the heart of Jesus Christ, he runs to Jesus instead of running away from Jesus. He brings his sin into the presence of Jesus so that Jesus can heal him. He doesn't say, Jesus, you need to depart from me because my sins are so great. He knows that although his sins are great, that Jesus is a greater Savior. And this morning I want to say to you that some of you, you, you need to fling yourself out of the boat. Some of you, you need to take your sins and you need to bring them to Jesus not allowed your sins to drive you away from Jesus. Some of you need to come and just with a, just with a muster seat of faith, halting and doubting and arguing and questioning, is this going to work? Is Jesus going to receive me? You just you need to believe and trust that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do. I need to come and believe that though your faith is little, your Savior is big, and his grace is greater than all your sin. Let's bow in prayer together as we close our time. Jesus, we thank you for what we've seen of you in this passage of scripture this morning. We praise you for your holiness, for your power, for your sovereignty, your might, your compassion, your mercy, your grace, your sufficiency. Have mercy on us, For we are men and women of little faith. How easily we doubt you. How easily we question you. How easily we are overcome by the storms of life. And yet we praise you that you remain faithful to us. May we never lose the sense of the wonder that you would love us, that you would die on the cross for our sins. Though we are more sinful than we ever dared believe, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. All because of who you are. All because of what you have done for us. We give to you all the praise, all the glory. We pray this in your name.